You're listening to a Times Higher Education podcast. Hello and welcome to the Times Higher Education podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Custer, and the editor of Campus. We're in the height of a summer of climate crises. July is set to be the hottest month on record. Wildfires are engulfing Greece and Spain. There are deadly floods in India. And at the same time, we heard this week that the UK government will allow new oil and gas drilling licenses for the North Sea, and global coal consumption is at an all-time high. It's safe to say nothing leads me into the slew of despond like the climate emergency. And I know I'm not alone in my sense of hopelessness. So it's times like these that I have to seek out hope, find someone who does it better than me and just cling to their way of doing it, even if I don't wholly believe it myself. So I want to start this episode with a quote from the writer and environmentalist Rebecca Solnit from her book of essays, Hope in the Dark. She writes, Inside the word emergency is emerge. From an emergency, new things come forth. The old uncertainties are crumbling fast, but danger and possibility are sisters. Acknowledging crumbling old certainties, but imagining new possibilities, is something our first guest on today's episode has done. Brian Alexander is a senior scholar at Georgetown University and a futurist. We recently spoke about his book, Universities on Fire, in which he, among other things, tells universities to wake up and realize that they can make a profound change in the climate crisis. Brian, thank you so much for joining us on the Times Higher Education podcast. It's great to have you here today. Thank you so much, Sarah. It's a pleasure. We brought you on today to talk about um, a book that you've written that was actually released in March um, called Universities on Fire, and it is projecting into the next eight decades of higher education and the climate crisis, taking us up to the year 2100. Why did you decide to write a book like this? Uh, my previous book, uh, which was called uh, Academia Next, had taken a look at primarily United States higher education for roughly a generation ahead. And I wanted to follow that up with a longer-term book, taking a look through the year 2100. And I wanted to expand the scope to look at global higher education more deeply. And as I was working on this and laying the groundwork for it, I realized that there was very little discussion in higher ed about climate change. But in the futures field, where I'm a professional, climate change is considered axiomatic. I mean, if, if you don't talk about climate change in a forecast, that's kind of you know, malpractice. Um, so I, I thought, this is interesting. So I, I saw, you know, maybe this is an opportunity here. I started diving into it. And the, the more I looked into it, the deeper and more complex the, the situation got. Uh, and I was able to um, really explore this further and further. And it, it really ramified. I, I find um, the minute I, I finished the first draft of the book and turned it to the publisher, I already had a document of things to add, which is now just enormous because... The world keeps developing uh, outside of academia. The, cli- the crisis keeps deepening and academic reactions are beginning to trickle up. So, um, yeah, I, I found this. To, and this is, again, this is pretty unusual in the higher ed- literature. There's not a lot about this. Uh, a wonderful German scholar has edited a couple of uh, anthologies of papers uh, about uh, climate change in higher ed. And that's about it. I thought it was an incredibly um, thorough look at higher education. You don't you don't really pull any punches and there's really no stone left unturned. I mean, you address uh, the tenure incentive system, you address um, arguments of people saying there are just too many conflicting interests right now. We've got financial problems, we've got political problems, we've got equity problems. How could we possibly prioritize the climate? You address issues of people saying, oh, it won't happen on my campus, or we are doing something, isn't that enough, to the sacred academic international conference. Uh, I'm curious to know, um, A, what's been the the response from your colleagues in the academic community, and what's on your list that you think you left out? Uh, Great questions. Um, Too often, the response has been silence. And I don't mean that in saying, oh, gosh, I wish people would buy more books. I mean, obviously, I want that to happen. But but I, I want to stir discussion. And I, I find all too often a lot of faculty, staff, a lot of academic leaders uh, are 
pretty deliberately silent. I, I've had some very interesting conversations with presidents and trustees who tell me they don't want to touch the subject because they think it's a political nightmare, uh, that it would cost them and there would be no advantage. It would cost them financially, it would cost them reputationally, and they didn't see any upside to it. Uh, I've spoken to faculty and staff who tell me, as you just summarized very accurately, they feel themselves overwhelmed. Uh, they have two plus years of the pandemic. Uh, depending on which country you're in, you know, if you're in obviously Ukraine, Russia, Myanmar, the United States, you've had political uh, chaos and pressure. Uh, you know, you uh, depending again on which institution you're in, you may have had the pressures for other causes, notably say anti-racism. You may also have problems, in, definitely in the United States, where we have financial stresses on a good number of our colleges and universities, uh, where they're watching bu budget cuts happen uh, and uh, the increasing precariousness of the uh, academic labor force. And so for them to be told, all right, climate change, by the way, the biggest crisis facing human civilization, they just more or less say, enough, I, I, I can't do that. And further, there's a, a, a distancing uh, where they see that the crisis is either something that they have no tangible action they can take about it. Uh, there's nothing they can do besides not vote for climate deniers, or they feel that it's too far off and too remote. Um, so we'll, I, I've been told by a surprising number of, of academic organizations and planners that climate change is too futuristic. It's something that's going to happen too far down the road, and we don't need to care about it now or that academia is too small. It has too small a footprint, both carbon footprint, but also political footprint. So if an academic wants to be active on the climate crisis, we should lobby for areas where you get more efficiency. You, you have a greater bang for your buck. Uh, so you should lobby governments, you should lobby large corporations. Um, now, the, all that said, when I talk to people under 30, the, op the reaction is completely different. Uh, they are enthused. Uh, I've had really interesting presentations and discussions where I'll have a room full of people and the students will swarm me afterwards because they've grown up with this uh, and they know this is a major issue and they really want to be active. Uh, so I, I think in many ways this may be a generational issue. Correct me if I'm wrong, but the one of the messages that I get from your book is that Yes, all of these problems exist about finances, racism, equity, um, politics, but it will be exacerbated by the climate price crisis, and it has to be looked at from a, a climate crisis lens. And and, and uh, people yeah. people aren't thinking about that generally, unless uh -huh. unless they're already climate activists. Um, I, mean, I mean, at a basic level, you can say. You can imagine climate change infusing everything. So uh, racism, uh, gender representation. I mean, we know already that climate change, the IPCC reports are very clear on this, that climate change falls hardest on marginalized communities and especially on women around the world. Um, but also, I mean, I think one of the great challenges of this is that thinking through the climate crisis requires really re-understanding human civilization as it works. I mean, we have to rethink issues of economic growth, for example. We have to rethink issues of how we use technology. And that, that reframes a lot of what we discuss. And, and you can see this throughout the climate literature. There's a quite a bit, you know, there's lots of pro-indigenous people movements inside of that. There are a lot, definitely pro-feminist, pro-women, uh, lots and lots of anti-racist thinking. And there's uh, great scholars, Andreas Malm, for example, from Sweden, uh, co-author this wonderful book, um, uh, White Skin, Black Fuel, which takes a look at the, you know, the intertwined histories of carbon burning in Europe and the right wing uh, from the 19th century through the present. Uh, I, I, I'll, unfortunately, while academics are professionally the best positioned to think this through, I think they're all too often too exhausted uh, or have other interests to actually follow that up. One thing that your book does do, in addition to pointing out all of this stuff and, and having a, a very urgent call to action to it, it does offer some solutions. A lot of your predictions bring in uh, many, many examples. I mean, you said a lot of people think that this is a futurist topic, but for thousands of institutions around the world, this is a very real everyday problem that's already arrived at their doorstep. Um, one of the examples that I liked is that um, you cited a, a drawdown advice saying that educating women is the most effective strategy to fight climate crisis just because of the agency that that brings to a lot of communities and their ability to contribute to that. 
Can you remind us of um, a couple of other of the maybe the things that kind of stand out for you the most of just effective and effective ways that um, higher education research and then also teaching can um, be looked at and evolved and developed through a climate lens? Sure. Uh, First of all, it's really important to recognize that no academic discipline owns the climate crisis, that the studying, understanding, responding to the climate crisis is as interdisciplinary as it gets. I mean, you think we have all of the natural sciences are involved, you know, chemistry, hydrology, uh, atmospheric science, obviously, right? But then a lot of the quantitatively intensive social sciences are really involved. Uh, economics, for example, in trying to understand the impact of, of climate change on our economy, but also how climate mitigation, climate adaptation gets costed and financed. Uh, one, one economist already won the Nobel in economics uh, about this. Um, and then you think about the non-quantitative social sciences. You think of psychology, right, which is already coming up with new descriptions for uh, how we respond to uh, climate crisis, what that does to us mentally and how it changes our development. You have people in history trying to figure out how to rethink quite a bit of history uh, in terms of climate pressure. In the humanities, I mean, you have a large number of people who are trying to figure out how to communicate climate change through different fields, through the arts. Uh, In journalism, I've already seen calls that basically every journalist has to keep in mind climate change as they work. Because if you're reporting on sport, if you're reporting on war, on economics, on culture, it's it's coming right into those fields. Um, but also, I mean, in my own field, where I got my PhD, English literature, there, there is, you know, right now a budding corpus of climate fiction, which is trying to help people imagine where the climate could go. So I think that plays out in terms of research agendas for universities around the world. And I think universities have to figure out how to best support faculty who want to do more of this kind of work. But then this also plays out in teaching uh, so that you can infuse climate into just about everything you teach. And we've seen this in a few different campuses already. Uh, Dickinson College, a small college in Pennsylvania in the United States, uh, has an interesting requirement. Every student must take one class in sustainability in order to graduate. And they do have a sustainability program. It offers a few classes. But the key thing is almost any department can apply to have a class designated sustainability class. So it might be a class in biology, it might be a class in public health, it might be a class in philosophy. Um, So already you can see that across the board. Um, And supporting that, we we know how to do this, but we often don't do it well, having interdisciplinary teaching. So I wouldn't be surprised to see larger universities have climate centers whose job it is to help support uh, research and teaching faculty in this. But we also have to rethink uh, the physical operations of the campus, uh, which, you know, we have a carbon footprint. Uh, and it's not just carbon, it's also methane and to a you know, lesser extent other gases like freon. But the key thing is, how do we reduce that carbon footprint? I mean, how, uh, and there's all kinds of ways. Do we, for example, prohibit uh, fossil fuel uh, burning cars uh, from campuses, uh, either ones that are owned by the campus or that you know, people visit? Uh, what, how do we change up our food service? Uh, to all you know, move away from uh, uh, carbon, water, and methane intensive animals uh, to plant products instead. Um, you, you mentioned briefly, you know, one of the great academic perks, um, as well as one of the great academic functions, is air travel. Uh, so you know, uh, going I. You know, I've, of course, done this myself. I've traveled to you know, Singapore, to North Africa, to Europe, to you know, South America on research uh, purposes. Uh, how do we cut that down uh, and replace that with, say, what we're doing right now you know, through video conference? Uh, I mean, there, there's so many ways of rethinking this. And, of course, this is an issue in Britain as well as almost any nation which has older campuses, which is how do you change the carbon footprint of their buildings? You know, how do you renovate them to use to emit less carbon? Um, and we know all kinds of ways. There are tons of architectural best practices, documents, schools of design, and standards that we can go with. Uh, but it can be expensive. It can be capitally intensive. It can also interfere with the, you know, the the historical look and feel of a campus. I mean, looking at Oxford or Cambridge, right? That's that's the core appeal of these famous dreaming spires, right? Um, how do you how do you change that in a way that is 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 there? Do you, for example, cover the campus with wind turbines if you've got enough wind flow? Do you stick you know hydro power into water? Do you cover the area with solar cells? I mean, it, it's a it's a topic that just ramifies and really requires, I think, a full institutional commitment in order to be able to do right. You mentioned the Drawdown book. I I can't recommend that enough. It's an incredibly lovely looking book. It's incredibly accessible. Basically, every two pages is something you can do. Um, and academics, we oh, cool. need to be on this. I to the to the academics who say I 
I, I shouldn't do this, we are too small. It's a it's an article of faith now in the climate community that this is an all of the above crisis, that we've got to try everything and everybody needs to be involved. You even make the point in the book that um, there's a real reputational risk here that universities will be blamed for training the people who have created a society where the climate crisis is developed, but then also blamed for not doing enough to, to answer it and to respond to it. Well said, well said. I mean, you think about, for example, uh, petroleum engineering. In, in American academia, that's some of the most lucrative uh, uh, jobs, both in academia and outside of academia. And I think it'd be pretty easy to make the case that petroleum engineers have, have helped burn the world. Uh, so what happens, I mean, this is you know, looking ahead, when an 18-year-old student uh, who in Europe might be part of Just Stop Oil, for example, uh, or Extinction Rebellion, uh, will find out their campus has tenured and supports a faculty member in petroleum engineering who then trains legions of students. At the very least, that student would say, fire them, end that program, right? Um, or, or do something more drastic, you know, just stop oil, right? Um, you know, throw, throw food at their door, right? Um, I mean, plus we can think of other fields as well. Uh, right now, there's been some interesting criticism of business schools uh, for basically training MBAs and business majors to go forth and uh, promulgate and work in a way that uh, accelerates global warming. Uh, that's very, very growth-oriented. That's very much in favor of uh, uh, fossil fuel consumption and ex as well as fossil fuel extra uh, exploration and exploitation. Uh, I mean, you can really cut this in a lot of ways. How many people in political science or in government uh, have played a role in making sure that we minimize this? How many people in the communication field have uh, done public uh, relations for fossil fuel companies? And so on. And, and this, as the crisis ratchets up, I mean, as global warming continues to warm, and as the crisis gets worse and worse, this may expand into other fields. Uh, you know, think about, for example, agriculture or food systems, um, and you know how many academics helped promulgate diets that were based on a lot of animal products and meats. Uh, yeah. So, I, I I think in many ways we may have a reckoning within higher education, and it may come from without. I mean, the, to pick the example of the petroleum engineer, how many, what will happen when you have people in the nearby city or the nearby county who then say, you have what? You've been doing what for decades? Um, you know, peasants with torches wait, might be wait, an extreme To be example, fair though, Brian, I mean, I do think in, in some of those instances, for example, the food program, I mean, think, I think a lot of that is perhaps looking at past actions with a 2023 lens, which might be slightly unfair to, to pace, place the blame totally on institutions for training people who've contributed to this. However, the response that they now must make to it is something that we can put squarely on their doorstep. Well, the response, yes, but also the history is, is tricky. Um, I, I think in, you know, in, depending on your culture, depending on the nation, you know, there's always that balance between a punitive desire and a desire to forgive. Uh, uh, Bill McKibben tells me he thinks that we're not going to see much like a um, Truth and Reconciliation Commission, um, in part because this crisis is moving so, our response rather, is moving so slowly um, that by the time we get to that, uh, so many people will just be dead. Um, yeah. But but it's it's clear that we've known about global warming since the 1980s very, very clearly. Uh, so we have a generation of, of academics who persisted in this with eyes wide open. Um, and also those who will be doing it right now. Uh, and I, and I, I'm not, depending on how this crisis plays out, this might, this might become something where the politics become ever more intense. Uh, people might look for scapegoats. They might look for targets. Their ideology might change. Uh, this may become more dire, um, and we may look for this. Uh, but you asked the question on two sides. The, the flip side of this is, is to what extent do we, you know, do we valorize what academics do and do we support it? Do we look at academics who, you know, uh, Professor Michael Mann, for example, and, and who, you know, have been sounding alarm for quite some time. Uh, how do we support them? How do we recognize them? Do, you know, do we give uh, awards for leading thinkers in, in uh, climate research and climate teaching? Uh, I think that's ahead as well. I mean, this is this is all based on an assumption that the uh, IPCC's moderate scenarios will occur, that you know, global warming will continue, we will struggle to uh, grapple with it, and we will do we will take some steps. 
uh, I have one chapter which is the scariest thing I've ever written uh, where I examine two uh, other scenarios, the possibility that things are actually better than it look, that we have, you know, the humanity acts quickly uh, and that nature responds in a very genial way. And then there's the flip side, uh, if things are worse. Um, if we have, you know, in the United States, a second Trump administration, if, you know, in Brazil, another, you know, a Bolsonaro style. I mean, in Britain, you're already doing that because Sunak is, you know, I mean, Johnson wasn't that great on climate, but Sunak is much, much worse. Um, uh, I mean, so, and plus, we could just be unlucky. Uh, you know, we could have the jet stream slow down. We could have, uh, you know, the Arctic or the Antarctic slide into feedback much more quickly. Methane leakage may occur from, you know, around the Arctic. Um, it's possible that we'll be facing a far worse crisis within a generation, in which case we have to think about the function and purpose of higher education. The book talks a lot about um, climate literacy, um, and it was something that whenever you brought up the example of, um, I think it was Duke University, or was it Dickinson? I think it was Dickinson who mm -hmm. is um, kind of incorporating some sort of climate certification that every uh, graduate has to have. And there was a there was a quote that you had from the um, great English environmentalist scientist James Lovelock, um, who said that our knowledge of the Earth system is about where our knowledge of the human system was at the turn of the last century. We have so much to learn, but so little time to learn it. I wonder if whenever you were doing the research for this book, if you got a sense for what level climate literacy was at kind of across the board in higher education. Well, I'm so glad you caught that Lovelock quote, um, because that just that just demolished me when I saw that. Uh, yeah. I mean, he, he was always an astonishing writer um, and thinker, but, but that was just, uh, and for me, that helped give me impetus to get this book out there, um, to say, all right, so how many re academic researchers, you have to be on this right now. Um, the, I mean, is that urgent? The need is, it's a higher priority than many in many ways. Um, I think climate literacy at a basic level is, uh, is generally out there in academia, uh, this, uh, there are very few climate deniers. I mean, every so often you get a high-profile one like uh, uh, the Danish said, uh, Lomberg, um, you know, but most of the time, uh, most of the time not. Most academics are, are, are you know, accept the idea that uh, climate change is occurring, that glo the globe is warming. Uh, and yet I don't think there's a lot of depth into its second and third order ramifications. Um, so most of them haven't thought, for example, about the spread of disease. Uh, in the United States, in the northeast part of the U.S., there, uh, in the 1970s, there was um, a disease called Lyme disease, which is born by ticks, um, and that has that was a, it's called Lyme. It was named after a town in Connecticut um, where it was discovered. It's it's a very uh, it's a very nasty disease, but it has spread um, since then. It's it's broken out of its region, and the reason is uh, the temperature has has risen, uh, and the deer that carry the ticks that carry the disease have watered a field. Uh, and have now spread it to other areas. Uh, so, I mean, that's already happening, um, and it's, it's bad news. But we should expect other uh, diseases to move and, and change as animals and plants begin to alter. Uh, you know, different climates no longer support certain kinds of flora and fauna, um, and animals change and move. We have to think about what this means for food systems. I mean, this is one of the really horrifying ones. Uh, right now, for example, our, our ocean temperatures are much higher than we expected. And this has ramifications for the whole food system that's based on fish and shellfish and so on, which is a huge chunk of the global human diet. Uh, what happens when you can no longer grow certain grains or when you can't raise certain animals? And we say all this, you know, how does this impact the dreaming spires of a college or university? It hits us directly in terms of our ability to eat, but also what happens to our community around us. Uh, so if you're if you're a college or uh, based in a certain town, uh, which is you know based in a certain form of agriculture, that agriculture no longer works, does your <clears throat> town collapse? Or does it mutate into something else? Does it change its economy? Uh, plus, we have other effects in terms of politics. Uh, as the crisis worsens, does that mean that in local, you know, city, county, regional, national, supranational authorities start implementing policies either for or against climate change? 
And this is this is worth a whole book by itself, and to a degree, it's above my pay grade. Uh, but you know, thinking about what happens when, say, you know, uh, the French government just make this up, mandates you know um, the end of fossil fuel burning in every community of, of above a certain number. Uh, how many campuses then have to make plans for this? But what happens when you also have the opposite? If you have a climate denial government that then says, you know, well, you shouldn't do this, or we're going to prohibit solar power in in the Florida. Um, one of the terrible ironies of our time is that Florida, the state of Florida is completely bathed in sun. I mean, it's glorious for sun, which is why it's great for agriculture. But the state passed laws making it difficult to install solar power. Uh, so you actually have very little solar installation in Florida, which is criminal. I mean, it's just awful. Um, but if you're a campus trying to install solar, how do you run into problems with this? So I mean, the politics begin to echo and, and go on. So I, I think that second and third order implications of climate, I don't think most academics have, have been really thinking through yet. Uh, but again, there's a generational issue. Uh, I think people who, you know, the traditional age undergraduates who are 18 or 20, um, for them, this is part of life. There's, there's a there's a slogan I've seen at, at, at climate protests, uh, which says, you will die of old age, we will die of climate change. Do you feel that students will be the, the biggest driving force be behind this, um, behind any sort of change? I think one possibility is a repeat of the 1960s, um, where you have a very strong youth culture that then, uh, through a variety of means, exerts pressure, uh, exerts pressure on their campuses to offer new curricula, to change behavior, to change their research, to change the operations of their physical campus. Uh, I think that's a pretty established precedent, and we may see a repeat of that. But also that population ages up. I mean, we have people who are now 30, right, who are young faculty and young staff. So I'm expecting, you know, again, to come back to that poor petroleum engineer that I mentioned before, to expect that one of their colleagues, perhaps in anthropology, perhaps in astronomy, um, says, you know, you shouldn't work here anymore. Uh, your field is wrong. Your field is a war crime or a crime against humanity and needs to stop. Um, you know, so I, I think that will gradually age up. There, there's this cynical expression uh, about slow-moving institutional change called progress one funeral at a time um, that, I, that, that I've always liked. But um, it may be that we have that kind of incremental change where gradually academia starts to become more and more aware, driven by demographic transformation. That, that kind of brings me on to my next question for you is um, you talk about um, a defamiliarization at work and how universities retain, reimagine, and redesign the whole academic enterprise. I got the impression from the book that on the one hand, you're, you're saying that universities have to just live with this new uncertainty that perhaps they haven't been good at doing in these recalcitrant institutions that rely on their five-year strategies and never shall they sway from that. Mm -hmm. So they need to start living with uncertainty. But then at the same time, you're talking about um, being better at anticipating the changes that are coming and kind of reading the signs of it that are already there. An example that you use is um, the demise of fossil fuels and uh, greater reliance on renewable electricity and universities needing to be ready to change the curriculum and have the resources on campus to be able to, to shift to that. So... Tell me a little bit more about kind of how universities and specifically the leaders need to change the way that they're thinking in terms of how they run these institutions. Well, uh, to begin with the first part of your question, defamiliarization is a technical term from literary theory created by a brilliant uh, Soviet scholar uh, named Shklovsky back in the 1920s. And that simply refers to using um, any kind of formal change that can make you radically rethink something that you've seen before. Um, and Shklovsky used to refer to changes in literary style, but we're, we're used to this in visual arts and other things as well. And I think what happens here is that thinking through the climate crisis seriously makes us radically rethink just and re-see everything in higher education. Uh, it makes us think of things that we normally don't lump together, such as uh, uh, how to support an inter, uh, interdisciplinary um, uh, research agenda and um, how to how much we water our lawns, for example, and so I, I think that's a very powerful fact, uh, and that's going to take some time and some some cogitation and some reflection, and probably need professional development to, for support. Uh, in t I think in terms of of, of dealing with uncertainty, uh, we are definitely looking at just a twenty first century with a great deal of instability. The U.S. military has this term uh, acronym called VUCA. 
um, a, a future which is volatile, uncertain, chaotic, and ambiguous, uh, which, which I like a lot. Um, and it's possible that our, our university administrations will have to be thinking in those terms. And it may be that they learned lessons from the COVID crisis, uh, that, uh, you know, how to deal with an emergency. Um, and those lessons may or may not be applicable to this. They may or may not be humane ones or ones that we live with. Um, but hopefully they are. Uh, hopefully we've learned ways of having lowercase d democratic uh, conversation and decision-making in academia. Hopefully we've learned ways of being flexible uh, and, and being able to learn and act really quickly. But I, I think on top of this, and this is not just self-promotion on my part, please understand, is the idea of actually thinking of a future and thinking ahead and thinking beyond a kind of static five-year plan, um, trying to think of futures where things may break. Uh, where we may have massive instability, we may have feedback loops that suddenly you know pull us in different directions. Um, you know, how do we plan, for example, for a sea level rise of one meter? Uh, how do we plan for a temperature rise of say three degrees centigrade? Uh, you know, how do we plan for above all? And one of the things that I find nobody in academia is discussing: massive amounts of migration. I mean, the, all the projections estimate you know tens of millions of people at least, in a very basis, uh, will become climate migrants, moving out of areas that are too dangerous to live in. Um, I mean, just looking at how Europe and the United States reacted to a tiny flood of immigration from the Middle East and North Africa and, uh, and Central America, um, it gives me chills to think about how we'll respond to millions and then tens of millions on the road. Um, but academics have to think, do we host people physically? Uh, do we welcome them? Uh, do we teach them either in person or online? Um, you know, we have to have that futures orientation uh, and realizing the future will be different than the past. Uh, and this is a tall order uh, for uh, a lot of administrations, especially ones that are already coping with so many stresses. I mean, British higher education still working through all the implications of Brexit, much like you know the rest of British society is, for example. Uh, you know, think about academics in uh, nations uh, such as China, which are trying to you know um, you know cope with all the different changes that Xi Jinping puts out in in policy. Uh, think about academics in nations like Turkey or in India, which are trying to ride political waves that keep changing. Um, but we have to think about this now. Uh, mm. I, I mean, there's, there's, a, there's a slogan, which is to be a good ancestor. Um, you know, true futurist thinking would put us mentally, say, in the year 2100 and think, okay, how did we do in the 2020s? You know, did we actually pick up this struggle and deal with it in a positive, productive, far-sighted way, or do we screw up? Uh, I mean, I, that's the kind of view I'd like people to have in academia worldwide. Hmm. You talk about um, <clears throat> abyss gaze, which is something that the futurists um, get. Well, maybe you can explain it better than I could, but it is just kind of looking into the, this bleak future and, and considering all of the best case scenarios, worst case scenarios, and perhaps losing yourself in that. Can you tell us a little bit about kind of what what it was for you and the emotional toll that it took on you to write a book like this? Well, Sarah, we're, we're keeping up on the, on the uh, British culture theme here. Uh, Abyssgaze was coined by a wonderful uh, British writer, Warren Ellis, um, uh, who lives not too far from you, uh, as he puts it, out in the Thames Delta. This is a hypothetical idea. It was a science fiction novel he wrote where futurists uh, occasionally suffer mental breakdowns when they look too hard at an abyss, uh, a very, very negative future. Um, and, uh, and he posits a, a kind of mental health treatment facility, which actually sounds lovely to me in many ways. Um, the, uh, and for me, I concluded uh, one part of the book by imagining human extinction. Um, that's, this is in many ways galling uh, and draining. Uh, and I you know, ha had to work out uh, and deal with immense amounts of, of, of human suffering. I mean, think about the migrations I just mentioned, but thinking about backlash as well. Um, there's all kinds of, of, of horrors to envision and I've had to you know, force myself to stare at this. But at the same time, I've had to appreciate all of the positive um, aspects of how humans respond to crises. Uh, there's a wonderful book by Rebecca Solnit uh, called Paradise Built in Hell, which points out that in crises we often respond with mutual aid and humanity and care. Um, you know, thinking about 
the sheer amount of human innovation capacity, uh, just invention and creativity, just always, always inspires me. And I think we don't, we don't recognize that often enough. Uh, thinking about the solar punk design movement, for example, if, if listeners aren't familiar with this, uh, this is a design school which asks people to imagine a positive Anthropocene. And, and so far, we've seen solar punk play out in a range of media, in art, in, in fiction, uh, in computer games. Uh, I'm looking forward to more videos and film. Um, I think the best results right now are in, uh, are in art, uh, and to a degree in architecture. Uh, and I'd like to ask academics to imagine a solar punk campus, uh, a solar punk academic institution. And what does it mean to bring human creativity uh, and decency and innovation to this topic? And that's also one of the suggestions that you make is, is a way for academics to pass that on to their students who yeah. no doubt have climate anxiety is to use solar punk as a pedagogical tool to allow them to, to imagine a better world. And I'm, as a massive sci-fi fan, I'm so glad that you weaved that into the book. I just finished um, Ursula Le Guin's uh, The Dispossessed, which is maybe a, a oh, retrofitted yes. solar punk uh, text, which was from the 1970s, but would you say that you're you're hopeful about this, Brian? I mean, is it kind of you have to be? Um, it it depends on the day. Um, yeah. Uh, and uh, as another, uh, as a fellow science fiction fanatic, um, you know, I'll I'll point to works like uh, Kim Stanley Robinson's Ministry for the Future, uh, and say you know we have that capacity to see that far forward and 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 to act uh, on this. Uh, and again, when I, when I talk to students uh, and when I talk to the, the number of faculty and staff who are engaged in this, um, I'm heartened and inspired. Um, and, and so to an extent, I have to be optimistic, but also I, I do bank on human innovation and human creativity. Uh, and I think we should expect uh, things like direct air capture of carbon, for example, which may or may not play out, but it's an incredibly ambitious and interesting project. Uh, thinking about all the different ways of redesigning architecture, but also human society. I mean, right now, Europe, you guys are leading the way in a whole series of interesting economic alternatives, degrowth, no growth, dominant economics, um, none of which may work, but uh, they're, they're helping us rethink you know, the neoliberal economic inheritance. Um, so I'm, I'm very bullish on, on that kind of ferment of, of ideas and practice. But at the same time, I have to keep an eye on the abyss. Brian, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure, Sarah. I would like to welcome to this episode my colleague Eliza Compton. Hello, Eliza. Hi, Sarah. Thank you for coming on this episode to join me, I have to admit, um, it might be clear to our listeners that I'm struggling to talk about this topic really, and I'm struggling to find the right tone in which to address it. So I'm glad you're here. Yes, yes. Well, happy to help and very happy to be here talking a bit about universities on fire, which I found quite helpful. How so? Well, I think climate change can be incredibly overwhelming. It's such a, a big idea. It's a global crisis. It can be very easy to feel that none of us have any agency within it. But the scenarios that Brian writes about in his book at least give those scenarios a bit of shape and perhaps then a way to think about what you might do um, in a more concrete way. Yeah, he kind of pushes the boat out into different scenarios and some of them are really scary. Some of them are at least, as you say, giving a bit of a shape to it. When you put a, a label on something, it makes it feel certain, even if it's that's a, a false reality. I think even reading about his projection into the future, having him give some sort of form to it um, is less scary than anything that my brain was imagining it would be. I think so. I think his scenarios are terrifying. Um, but the idea is really not to offer a salve, but to prompt people into to action, as you said at the top of the episode. Yeah, without being alarmist so that we aren't totally turning everyone off. No, no, absolutely not. There's definitely a sense of call to action. And um, some glimmers of hope, uh, a nugget of possibility there, which I appreciate him doing. Um, and I, I appreciate his efforts to... Um, Tell us how he is being hopeful while still staring into an abyss there. 
But a lot of this will not be news to many people working in universities, um, even though Brian highlights a lot of people who perhaps have their head in the sand uh, about this topic. There are many, many, many people working in institutions who have dedicated their lives to finding solutions to this, to studying it, to understanding it more, to putting even more labels and categorizations on these things to make it um, a known crisis. Um, and that also gives me hope. Hope knowing that there are experts out there way smarter than me who are doing what they can to address this huge, overwhelming global problem. And Eliza, I think you spoke to somebody in that position. Tell us about him. Yes, I did. I spoke to Sebastian Fouch, who is an Associate Professor in Urban Planning and Management at, at Western Sydney University. He engages in multidisciplinary research that is around the very complex issue of urban heat. And he had lots of interesting practical things to say about heat management in urban in environments, which I have to say I found inspiring. And there's some very important context that we need to know about this conversation before we listen to it. Absolutely. So people who haven't been to Sydney may think that Sydney is all about Bondi Beach and the Opera House. But in fact, Sydney has a massive urban sprawl and one of the campuses that Sebastian talks about is in a place called Penrith, which is actually 60 kilometres from Bondi Beach, almost due west. Hmm, interesting. So I can see how it would be such a different climate going from the Bondi Beach coast uh, more towards the inland 60 kilometres where uh, it sounds like Sebastian has been doing his research. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There's a huge variation and it's what makes Western Sydney an interesting case study for, for this topic. Sebastian, hi, welcome to the Campus Podcast. It's really fantastic to speak to you this morning. Thank you. Having me on the show is great. Um, I wanted to talk to you today about your research into urban heat, but I understand you've had an interesting journey to climate science. Can you tell us a bit about how you come to be at, uh, at Western Sydney studying urban heat? Mm, yes, it wasn't a straight trajectory, that's for sure. Um, after school, I actually did an apprenticeship in interior design and window dressing, believe it or not. So it was completely off uh, from the topic that I'm, that I'm working now on. After that, I traveled, I backpacked through Southeast Asia and I saw a lot of forest destruction. Um, and that really prompted me to study forestry and forest management. I did that in Germany and then did a PhD in Australia. I, by the time, played the didgeridoo very wildly, was very involved in that. That was around the 2000 Olympics. Um, and I said, I have to somehow get in touch with people in Australia to continue my forest research. And that's what happened. Uh, I did my master's here and I did my PhD um, in the tall mountain ash forests in the east and south of Melbourne, looking into water catchments there. And then I worked for 15 years on fundamental plant sciences related to climate change, drought. Um, we looked into water transport. We looked into fire and recovery from fire. We looked into elevated CO2 in controlled environments. And I worked a lot across different ecosystems um, in Australia. But then the time came where suddenly Australia rolled up its forest research program from the government. And that meant I needed to make a decision. Do I want to continue working with trees, which I love, um, or do I just start a different career? Because forest research was really dying here. It was very difficult to find funding for this type of work that I've done before. And this opportunity arose where Western Sydney University offered me the chance to start a complete new teaching and research program into urban greening. And I took this opportunity and never looked back since. That's quite a big change from forestry to cities. Do you find that they have much crossover? Yes, because the, the fundamental sciences still applies when I, in my PhD, I worked with tree physiology. So the, the real functions, the physiological functions of trees. And in this urban greening, which very quickly morphed into urban cooling program uh, in Western Sydney, because it's such a hot part of the Sydney basin, 
it was very clear from the very start that I need to apply my tree knowledge because we're talking about trees all the time now. And it's the same globally, really, when it comes to cities that everyone wants to have them greener, everyone wants to cool them down. And the first means and the very effective means are trees. And so it became really good that I had some knowledge what also the limitations would be around trees that people need to understand because it's not a wonder weapon, the silver bullet, that you just plant a million trees in your city and, and then everything is fine. It, it really helped. I have to say it helped to be uh, very firm in understanding of how trees function, uh, what their limitations are when it comes to cooling, because once they have no water, there is no transpiration cooling. People at the beginning, five, six, seven years ago, they all forgot about that. They thought it's just shade that they provide and then it cools our surfaces and our urban heat island effect is reduced and everything is fine. And that's not the case. So it was quite helpful to have a background in, in trees and no tree functions. Mm. How much control actually do we have over urban climates? I mean, you've talked about planting trees and your research covers car parks and painting surfaces. Can we control the heat in these environments? There are two aspects to that. One is your microclimate. The other one is the synoptic um, climate that a city experiences. Even a city generates its own climate depending on where it is and how big it is. So there, there are different ways to approach this. We can regulate at micro level. That is something we can actively do and have relatively quick benefits from these changes that we can implement. They come to design. You mentioned um, highly reflective surfaces that can be painted or can be installed on rooftops. Um, we can put green roofs in and green facades. Trees, uh, on the other end, they probably need 20 um, in some instances, 40 years to unfold their full cooling capacity. So there's a, there's a different temporal scale in here. Where we really have a problem is when we look at the whole of a city climate, because that then becomes dependent on, for example, climate change impacts like heat waves. This is nothing we can reduce with trees. Once you have a heat wave rolling, let's say, into the Sydney Basin or into Spain or at we see, as we see at the moment into Greece or the Mediterranean more broadly, these are thousands of cubic kilometers of hot air. A few trees in the way, even a million trees in the way of this kind of captured energy in a, in a whole um, weather system is not something that we can simply change by painting a few roofs wide and planting a few more trees. This is something that we need to address what we're trying to do with the Paris Agreement to decarbonize our lifestyles and reduce greenhouse gas emissions. That's the only way that we can really have an impact, a lasting impact on those large synoptic patterns. But in the meantime, because we know that will take a little while, we shouldn't sit on our hands. We should really look into all options that we have available to cool urban spaces down to make the life in our cities bearable during those extreme events and even just the hotter summers that we will experience. Mm -mm. I want to put universities into this context. The issues that we're talking about, climate change, urban heating, are these too large for universities to have any effect on, both in terms of inform getting information out there, but also in terms of what they can actually do with their own physical environments. Mm. And I, uh, I have to tell your listeners that you're talking to the right university in this instance, <laughs> because we're in the second row, and this is not bragging, it's, uh, it's a global competition. We're in the second row for the number one university in the world at Western Sydney University. Uh, we competed against 1800 universities worldwide this year, and we came out at the top in the Times Higher Education Impact Ranking that looks into how well we are faring uh, towards the Sustainable Development Goals from the United Nations. And you can only achieve this kind of ranking if you're not just, if you're not just teaching or if you not just have research, but also if your whole organization pulls in the right direction to deliver on the individual of the 17 um, sustainable development goals. So really the organization itself 
has also to work on its building, on its landscaping, on its waste management, on strategies for gender equality and incorporating indigenous knowledge. Um, they're not just our research programs. There is much more that um, we're doing to look into how we as an organization, as Western Sydney University, can actually contribute to reaching as much as we can ever reach um, those sustainable development goals by 2030. Mm, mm. And so you're obviously doing a lot of work um, in this area at Western Sydney. What can universities do to make their campuses uh, more heat safe or more climate aware? We're back to trees. Um, so that's the, <laughs> that's the, the, I say, the lowest hanging fruit. If you have the capacity um, introduce shade. And natural shade is, of course, much preferred over engineered shade. The The other large part in this, and I didn't really mention it in my previous answer, is the education role that we're playing by providing all our courses, units, degrees and everything to the next generation of people that go out there and work and have the capacity to change. So it's this kind of um, influence where we want to empower, instead of just teaching about the apocalypse, we want to empower our students to have the right tools to go out there and change the world and feel that they can do it instead of um, being the, the, the ostrich that sticks its head in the sand and still gets run over, um, but doesn't really see what's coming. So it's an education piece on one end. And then, of course, the, the university environment as a physical environment that needs to uh, be addressed as well. Um, we're looking into, particularly with our, with our campuses in uh, Penrith or Kingswood and the Hawkesbury. These are two campuses that are in the hottest part of Western Sydney um, itself. So they do experience uh, heat waves. I have measured just between the two campuses in a place called Castlereagh. Um, I measured 52 degrees air temperature um, during the summer of 1920, so 2019-20. It was um, over 50 degrees or at 50 degrees at six different locations where I had loggers out. This wow. is extreme. And our campus environment needs to be able to cope with that. So we need to look into also the uh, diesel generators or electricity power generators, storage of electricity that we then have available when we have blackouts uh, because our campus environment needs to be safe for students and staff. Uh, mm -hmm. And we need to have capacity to, when the lights go out, to still power our buildings and cool them down because if they don't, um, have this kind of cooling, they get hot very quickly. Some of them are not very well insulated, are relatively cheap built. They would warm up very quickly. And then, of course, that becomes a concern for staff and student health. Mm. Do these sort of changes that you're talking about, do these affect the way that the campus looks or operates? Could you see a, a university of the future being a different sort of beast to the ones we have now? Yeah, I do, Eliza. Um, I compare it a little bit with hospitals. Um, hospitals mm -hmm. should be the last refuge, right? It, sh it should be the place that goes down last in any catastrophe because people will flock there for help. Now, at universities, it, it's not so much the help, the physical help, but it's the, the support with information, with the latest information that is applicable, that can be used, uh, that is relevant, and so universities should really uh, live what they're teaching. And we can see it in some of our campuses where we have the capacity because um, we do have heritage constraints on some campuses. But on other campuses, we have a whole solar farm. And this solar farm is now powering part of the campus. And we are collecting all the rainwater that we uh, recycle and then use for irrigation in our greenhouses. So we're really looking into what we're teaching around circular economy. We're collecting food waste and we're composting that. We're even getting energy out of that through um, um, biogas. And then the residue we use as fertilizers in our research greenhouses and, and, and produce fruit uh, that we can't sell into the market, but we give to um, an equivalent like the long table. So uh, th th there's lots of stuff that you can do to demonstrate to industry and government what really is best, best practice. Yes, I can see then that you're 
giving universities quite a, a large role in combating climate change. We have a we have a mandate to do that because mm. in the end we're receiving taxpayers' money, right? The the yeah. university uh, also in England in Europe um, anywhere anywhere you go where you don't have private universities that may be financed through philanthropy, for example, it is taxpayers' money. We we need to make that work to the best benefit of the society that we work in. And it's very interesting in Western Sydney University we have in our constitution a section that says that our research needs to benefit the populations that our campuses are in. We can't just have something that's great and works, let's say, in in Texas or Canada or uh, in Argentina. It has to be in Western Sydney. We're only uh, one of two universities in Australia that have that in their constitution, and we're very proud of that because it really means we're working together with the locals. We're working together with groups of mums that bring their children into our labs to participate in studies of brain development. Um, all of this is is part of how we operate at Western Sydney, which um, sometimes may be limiting, but I think most of the time it's specifically rewarding because you're really seeing how your work changes the life of the people around you. And my work is part of that because I, I implement things that make the city cooler and I measure that and I quantify that. And now in Parramatta, for example, we have Australia's longest green track for the new light rail line, which means we substituted concrete uh, with with grass, with pervious surfaces um, that can now absorb rainwater and transpire that or evapotranspiration will help cool uh, the environment instead of adding more heat to it. And it's just great to see those little examples. I, I was talking about the micro um, scale where we can really change a lot. And, and if that starts to snowball, then the positives um, are generated automatically. So you just start to have people take the playground example build it different playgrounds and then they do this in the hundreds and of course that has an effect that has an effect on public health um, on on connection with nature the list is long it must be really satisfying to see your research actually having such a uh, such an impact in the in your local environment through these different sorts of collaborations um, I wanted to ask you too, with um, this behaviour change and things that you're talking about, changes around you as a result of projects, do you yourself do anything differently as a result of your knowledge of urban, um, urban heat and climate? So my house has a light coloured roof. That was very important to me because the, the dark roofs that we see everywhere, it's, it's my nemesis. I talk about it for about five years now publicly, how bad it is to put black roofs on um, single, uh, single homes, freestanding dwellings. We even got temperature measurements now from inside the roof cavity that shows that these cavities are 30 degrees hotter in summer when you have a dark compared to a light colored roof. And that, of course, means you need much more air conditioning to cool your home down. The other thing that I really live is, um, you can't see the surrounding of my house, but I live with big trees. I need to manage them very well. It costs a lot of money. We recently had a storm, part of a branch, well, it was already the size of a tree, fell onto my neighbor's house and damaged its roof, also the solar installation. And I'm really sorry for that um, because... We want to live with trees, but it means there's a risk that comes with it, and we have to manage that. After this happened, I had um, tree climbers in here that reduced canopy overhang from our trees into the neighbor's side. It cost me $6,000. That's a lot of money only to live with mm. trees, but I know the benefits that come from doing this because I barely need air conditioning in the part of Sydney where I am with all this green around me and particularly over me. Um, as canopy, I don't need air conditioning in summer because it stays cool. So there, there are things that I want to live that are important to me. I still drive a diesel car because I think nobody will pay anything for this car anymore. So I'll probably drive it to death before I can switch to an electric car. But honestly, I'm not convinced that that's the best solution. So there are things where I also, I'm not sure, even as a scientist, where I should as a person make certain decisions in certain directions, because I know that individualized transport is still not the right thing to do. We should have much more use of public transport. And sometimes, of course, what is really difficult is 
keeping positive and, and motivating my students when I know how, how close or how already over the climate cliff we are, what we're doing to this planet, and then, you know, create a cool playground. Yeah, that's, that's great for this community, but what does it do to help the planet? and give back to nature, re-nature, re-vegetate, regenerate. So there's a, there's a much larger piece of work that needs to be done. And sometimes I also, as a, as a climate scientist, just feel helpless um, because I'm, I'm also a human. Um, but I have all this knowledge and I have to pass on all this knowledge. And that sometimes is conflicting. So I, I, I help myself in this situation, really looking at these positive examples that, that you just mentioned, keeps me going. Um, because I can see change. I'm not just burning fossil fuels and doing a stupid job. I hope that my job provides change and information for change. Yes, it's, um, I mean, you have mentioned the, the idea of an apocalypse. It's hard not to be pessimistic, I think. There's a new book that's come out called Universities on Fire, which at the beginning of the, the book has a number of scenarios in which higher education is affected by climate change. So we have a few positive images, so a plant-covered campus um, powered by solar and wind, but there's also one that's surrounded by a very, very large fire break, which as a Western Australian, I can completely imagine this because we have fire breaks everywhere. Um, there's a campus moved inland to retreat from rising sea levels. There's disagreements and violent protests about policy, natural disasters that cause universities to, to close. You've mentioned that it's difficult to be, be positive when you're thinking about the, the larger picture. But do you see universities as being sort of part of the solution to this? Absolutely, as beacons of knowledge. That's the role that was assigned to universities more than, more than a thousand years ago. Um, that's, that's what we should do. We should produce the knowledge that helps us to overcome um, this drifting into the apocalypse. That's any university close to the oceans or next to the volcano. Um, that's the kind of science you need to provide on sea level rise, on melting ice sheets, on earthquakes and how climate systems change tectonic drift. If that's the case, go investigate it. Um, provide us with that knowledge. Uh, the best way to get that knowledge is through scientists and the most scientists in the world live uh, and breathe university air. So I think that's, that's a key role that universities have to play in this, in this hothouse future. You've, um, you've mentioned the, the, the global picture, and I know also that your research and your work is very focused locally, but do you think there are lessons that maybe Australia, as a little bit perhaps as a canary in the coal mine in climate change, do you think there's lessons that Australia can teach the rest of the world about what might be coming? Or as someone who is from Germany with um, experience of, of Europe, do you think that there are things that maybe Australia should be learning from other places about this? That's quite a large question. <laughs> I take it as two questions. I keep saying also to my international colleagues, um, Western Sydney particularly is a perfect test bed for conditions that will be the norm in Europe and in North America, Canada, in about 20 to 30 years. So you can get ahead by developing solution if you come and join us in Western Sydney, use it as a test bed, develop these solutions, take them back home and implement them to increase the resilience of your own populations. So you don't need to have simulation chambers where you have a bit of a, a, a poor person doing some labor in a, in a hot simulated climate, you experience how people work in a hot climate right here um, and then come up with solutions how this work can be made safe or still be done efficiently. Um, that's one part. So I think Western Sydney or parts of Australia uh, as testbed for other countries, absolutely. And that's the canary in the cold mine story. A coal mine story, which um, we also know just from looking at data, we know that Australia is heating up more than other countries, faster than other countries. Our average 
um, pre-industrial heating at the moment for average air temperature, average annual air temperature is 1.6 degrees. So we already passed the Paris Agreement. When other countries, someone um, told me even sit below one degree still, which is an enormous difference. So that's one part. The other part, of course, is that, yes, we can learn a lot from other countries where we are very slow with uptake. And I come back to urban development specifically because it's just the part of work at the moment that I'm doing. In Australia, we still are okay to get development approval uh, through what in Australia is called the BASIC system. You need five-star approval from BASICs to go ahead with your development. You get five stars if you just put a little bit of a silver foil in your in your roof cavity for insulation, but then have single glazing. So Australia, the hottest permanently inhabited continent in this world, is okay and gives you five stars to build a house that has single glazing. That's It's just something that should absolutely stop immediately. In Europe, you get triple glazing. And Europe has invented triple glazing to keep the warmth in, not so much to keep the heat out. But the insulation effect is the same. So there are lots of things in the built environment that we can absolutely learn. There's the so-called Barcelona model, um, where you build four to five story high, high apartment blocks with courtyards in the middle, where you have passive ventilation, you have green space for the local community that they can enjoy. You have a social life um, instead of isolation that we see in all of our suburbs as a real problem that then has follow on effects on mental health. Um, so there are lots of things that we can learn. Absolutely. You're painting such a picture of a jigsaw of exchange. Just as a final question, I don't know if I'm asking you an unanswerable question, but if the universities can do one thing now, what is it that they should be doing? The one thing that they all can do is collect all their roof water runoff, store it ah. on site and use it to irrigate all your greenery that you hopefully expand because you understand that once you have well hydrated greenery, green infrastructure, and that can be shrubs, garden beds, lawns, particularly trees, you will have a cooler microclimate on your campus. We know from educational research that not only nature around you helps you to relax and learn better, but it also helps to um, keep the whole climate down, which means you're at the same time reducing the energy needs for your buildings. So there are lots of positive follow-on effects on a, on a university campus. If you collect rainwater, store it on site, follow this concept of what is called sponge city at your scale, at your university campus scale, and really make that work in summer to keep temperatures down. Well, on that image of a lovely, cool, green campus, I will say thank you very, very much for your time today in talking to us. Um, I've learned a lot. It's been a real pleasure. It was my pleasure. Thank you, Eliza. Well, that's it for this episode of the Times Higher Education podcast. Eliza, thanks for coming on. Thank you very much for having me, Sarah. I'm now inspired to go and collect rainwater off my roof. I collect rainwater on my little patio, so that is one thing that I'm doing. So it's all about the tiny acts, right? It is, it is. And I think that's a, a hopeful note to end on. So thank you very much for having me on the podcast. Certainly. And thank you to Sebastian and Brian for helping us understand a bit more of this huge, ginormous, scary, overwhelming problem, um, but also bringing in uh, glimmers of possibility. If you enjoyed this episode or any previous episodes of the Times Higher Education podcast, give us a review on whatever platform you're using to hear this. We would really appreciate your support. Thanks and see you next time. You're listening to a Times Higher Education podcast.